0: this is andrew shower and you're listening to the avalanche hour podcast luckily i i was right on top of the crown when it broke you know any large data set which we have now This kind of approach with using neural networks can be really, really helpful.
1: You are tuned in to episode 4.21 of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND, an Avalanche of Solutions. And our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside with additional support from InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Alright, here we are in the middle of July. Hope y'all are staying as cool as you can out there in the heat hopefully finding fun things to do this summer while staying socially distant from other folks plenty of outdoor activities that's where it's at right now stay spread out in the outdoors it's my mo every day uh hope everybody's doing well out there and finding um some happiness in every day and looking forward to the snow flying I know I am but but while we're waiting might as well have fun Um, hopefully hopefully you're out there getting after it doing some climbing or mountain biking or kayaking or whatever you're into I don't know what you're into one thing I have been seeing lately amongst the social media posts within our circles are the release of dates from avalanche course providers so uh, looking ahead to next winter, um, not a bad idea. If you're thinking about taking an avalanche course, go ahead and, and book that now and and get locked in. Of course, we're not entirely certain what the future will look like in terms of um, socially distancing and you know how 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 classroom style learning is going to look. You know, so it's it's kind of an exciting time to blend maybe some other forms of of learning involved in Avalanche education, such as online learning with a field component. So I'll be interested to see how Avalanche educators um, tackle this for this coming winter. But I know the American Avalanche Institute and ARI, I'm sure others, if they haven't already released dates for courses, they will be soon. So check in with your favorite Avalanche course provider and see if there's some dates where you can uh, you can join them for a course this winter. I'm excited to share this episode with you all. Um, we've kind of been towards the end of the season. I've been on a theme of sharing interviews from my trip to Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana, from this past fall. Um, so we've, if, you, if you're not fully caught up with the latest episodes, um, we've highlighted some interviews with Yorty Hendricks, Jerry Johnson, Kevin Hammonds, um, all of whom are professors at Montana State University um, and have something to do with the snow science program, either through the earth sciences department or the civil engineering department. Um, in Jerry's case, uh, he's in the political science department, but does quite a bit of collaboration with Yordi on human factors stuff um, within the avalanche environment. Uh, the last episode, episode 420, I highlighted an interview with Alex Marienthal, um, where he was talking about some of um, his research and his master's degree. Um, today's interview is going to highlight Andrew Schauer, who graduated from the master's program in snow science, earth sciences, uh, department, the snow science program there back in May of 2019. And Andrew, um, has some exciting work that he was diving into in terms of the synoptic climatology related to deep slab avalanche cycles, Um, course he's going to talk all about it but essentially just to give you a little preview he had three different sites one at bridger bowl one at jackson hole and one at mammoth mountain and he was looking at the regional upper atmosphere circulation patterns um, both in the early part of the winter season as well as the the days leading up to a large deep slab cycle Andrew was able to sift through a tremendous amount of data um, with the help of self-organizing maps, also known as neural networks. Um, so this is some pretty techy stuff. Sounds like pretty cutting edge stuff in terms of especially being able to sift through all this data um, and could certainly help researchers in the future I do the same with a, with a variety of data set. Uh, this episode is included in the data set drinking game, so make sure you have your favorite 10-barrel beer on hand, and every time we say data set, including what I just said, and just now again, drink your beer. Uh, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this interview with Andrew Schauer. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks. You, thanks for having me. Yeah. How you doing today? Doing good. Nice. Getting psyched that ski season is kind of showing up. Yeah, it certainly is. It's right around the corner. Andrew, why don't you uh, introduce yourself? Tell us where you're from, what got you interested in snow and avalanches, and kind of your educational and career paths. Sure. I, I grew up outside of Chicago. Uh,
0: not a whole lot of avalanches going on there, but I was... You know from an early age, my parents got me into skiing. We grew up uh skiing on a old landfill called Wilmot Mountain that Vale recently bought um It was something like two hundred vertical feet and as a six year old that was heaven but um uh, I kind of knew from an early age that that wasn't really gonna cut it, so I had my mindset to come to school somewhere in the mountains and uh I found out about the snow science undergrad option at, at MSU, and uh, I knew that Bozeman was my place, especially when I looked into a little bit further and realized how close Bridgeable was to the university as a main selling point. Um, I've been out here around Bozeman since 2007. Um, went to school, and then I spent a few years just ski bumming, working seasonally in the summers and taking the winters off to ski lot. And then eventually kind of realized I wanted to get more into the uh, sort of kind of giving something back to the to the skiing community. And I got into to teaching avalanche classes through our friends group, the Friends of the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center. Um, and that was four or five years ago. And uh, around that time, I was starting to toss around the idea of grad school and, um, trying to pursue this, the avalanche research a little bit further. Um, and so I applied once, didn't get in and then applied the next year, uh, and thanks that you already took me on. And, um, and then I went down Did get, I completed my master's degree in May of this year. So May, 2019. And, um, yeah, just still still pursuing some research things and uh, and more teaching too coming up this winter.
1: Nice. So you completed the undergrad program in snow science, and then a few years later went back to the graduate program. Yeah, exactly.
0: And I kind of always had it in my mind that I wanted to do to go to grad school for something. And when I first graduated, I was thinking uh, more along the lines of engineering or maybe statistics and. I'm really happy that I didn't go right into it because uh, that's definitely not – I don't think I would have been as happy as I am now if I had gone down that road. But, yeah, so a few more years of skiing to set my mind straight <laughs> got me in the right program.
1: Nice. And we, I have focused a bit about the on the graduate program here at MSU, and maybe you could just talk briefly about your undergraduate experience there and kind of what, what types of classes did you take and how did that prepare you to – enter the graduate program.
0: Yep. So, uh, the, the program I was in as an undergrad has sort of been retooled by now. So it's a little bit different, but, um, it was a, a snow mechanics option, I guess was the degree. And then, and I also did a minor in statistics. So there is a, a lot of math involved there. There are a lot of, uh, structural engineering and like mechanics and materials was sort of the engineering side and then from the stat side there's a lot of like analysis and modeling and sampling classes that I took and then it was all an earth sciences degree so you know there's like the geology geography weather classes Um, I don't think I took any GIS courses until I was in grad school but it was really like a a very broad and, uh, strong quantitative background. And that's, I really liked that a lot. It's challenging, but yeah, super, super useful.
1: And no doubt helped you when you entered the graduate program, I would have to imagine.
0: Big time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think really having that, that stats background sort of prepped me for a, a, graduate program that was largely research-based, mm-hmm. um, I think it'd be difficult, not impossible, but a lot harder without it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, understanding the engineering side of things, at least fundamentally, really helped me digest a lot of the res- like other current research that's going on, which isn't necessarily uh, aligned 100% with what I ended up doing, but the the underlying com- concepts are definitely relevant, and yeah, be, having that, that just basic understanding of some of these engineering concepts really helped.
1: Sure. Well, let's dive into your graduate degree research, so the synoptic climatology of deep slab avalanches in the western United States. Um, break this down, provide a little background for why you decided to dive into this for your graduate research
0: yeah so I guess I had known for a few years even before I I started applying to grad school that I wanted to do something looking at deep slab avalanches just because it's such a hard problem and um you know we we really don't have a great way of forecasting them and um you know the main kind of take-home message is when you see that kind of structure you know with deep facets or depth or at the ground and a lot of snow on top of it you kind of just avoid it but um that can be frustrating at times and you know not always possible and and so I think that was kind of my main motivation was trying to to tackle that problem a little bit and maybe make it somewhat easier to predict and who knows if I was successful or not I think it helped a little bit but um so that's that was kind of the motivation and part of it the way it developed came through talking to Alex Marienthal when he was wrapping up his master's research which was a couple years before I started and then uh you know when I first started the program uh there were a lot of discussions with with Jordy, Hendricks and Carl Berklin who were both on my committee about exactly where it was going to go and um they kind of helped me narrow down, you know, from just deep slab avalanches to a much more specific question.
1: And what would that specific question be?
0: Yeah, so what I was trying to answer was what are the the synoptic drivers, so, you know, looking at regional scale, upper atmospheric circulation patterns that are tied to Deep persistent slab avalanches at three different study sites. So I looked at at Bridger Bowl um, here outside of Bozeman, at Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and in uh, Mammoth Mountain, California. Um, so we're trying to see what are the what are the sort of circulation patterns that show up early in the season when you're developing a weak layer, um, and what are the patterns that show up immediately prior to during you know, during the three days leading up to big deep lab, deep slab cycles, um, sort of in that trigger period that kind of tip the scales and make the make these things wake up.
1: Sure. And so and then you looked at you had a a large data set over a number of decades, right?
0: Yeah, so I was looking at five hundred millibar geopotential height maps, um, which is a pressure surface that occurs around sixteen to twenty thousand feet. Um right above most ridgetops in the continental U.S. And we had daily charts for the winter season, so November 1st through March 31st, going back to 1979. And uh, we ran those all the way through the 2017-2018 season. Um, And each one of those charts was... it. It's really represented by a set of grid points. So if you think of, um, you know, just a square grid, they're spaced two and a half degrees apart on an area that goes roughly from uh, the edge of the Aleutians on the western end to uh, just beyond the east coast of Canada um, on the eastern end, and then from Twenty degrees south, so you know, southern Mexico, all the way up to seven degrees, seventy degrees north. So it's a pretty big extent. Um, it was something like eleven hundred grid points for each day. So, so yeah, it was a large data set.
1: And you just manually went through all that data. <laughs> no way. A couple cups of coffee, <laughs> yeah. done right. Yeah,
0: seventy-five years later. <laughs> no, so. In order to manage that, I tried a, a few different things. Um, and this is sort of the framework of a, any synoptic climatology study where you're trying to draw connections between these large-scale atmospheric phenomena and some kind of surface, uh, any surface variable. In this case, it's deep slab avalanches. The first step is to classify all of your your huge data set into into certain patterns that that kind of repeat themselves through the through your study period so um for a long time manual classification was the the way to go there is just someone who is really sharp with you know you have a an atmospheric scientist or climatologist that could recognize all these patterns and they would just sift through them and sort them into different groups but now luckily that's not the way it's done as or at least not as common anymore um and I came across a relatively newer method called self organizing maps, which is a artificial neural network based approach that basically looks at all these different grid points on all these different days um and the first step is you know just generally it 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 recognizes the main patterns that tend to keep occurring throughout that whole data set so you so you the first step is to kind of just cover every mode of atmospheric circulation that happens and that's you know it's restricted by the number of patterns that you tell it you want to find but it's nice because it covers that wide range first and then the next step is it goes back through and day by day it is it it assigns each day to the pattern or the the atmospheric type that best represents it. So what I ended up with then, instead of the 6,000 daily maps I had, there's just 20 atmospheric types that can that sort of repeat themselves throughout the whole record. And um, and then you can do all kinds of cool things with that. So the next step was to figure out what, what the weather parameters were, the characteristics for each synoptic type. So, for example... Uh, you know, and it changes at each, at each study site too. So at Bridger Bowl, when we saw patterns that had, uh, you know, a strong ridge over the Intermountain West, we'd expect to see, you know, some warmer temperatures and, and drier conditions generally. Um, compare that to something where you see a trough sort of right over, uh, over Montana and maybe a, a slight ridge over the coast, where you have more northwest airflow uh, coming in over the region, you expect colder temperatures and more precip. And we picked that apart for each of the twenty types at each of the three study sites, and that was kind of the the first uh, well, that's the way we tackled the the weather and atmosphere half of the problem.
1: Okay. And so, with these twenty types, did you, you know, I imagine you kind of narrowed it down to several that were more characteristic of of what you were looking for to create a deep slab mm-hmm. snow environment, snowpack environment.
0: Yeah, so it was pretty cool. There's uh, in uh, over the course of the of the whole study period, you know, with twenty types, you'd expect each type to show up five percent of the time, just you know, purely based on probability. And of course, that's not the case because there's certain types that are more common the, than others. But it ended up being, if you look at the whole period, um, even if you split it down to November through January, you see each type occurs somewhere between like 3 and 6% of the time. So it's pretty evenly distributed. But then when you slice the data set down and look, focus more on these, on the seasons that had a lot of deep slab activity, then you see these patterns are occurring, certain patterns are occurring, you know, two to four times more frequently than what you would expect based on the whole record, which would indicate them as sort of these high-risk type uh, patterns. Um, And at Bridger Bowl and Jackson, what that looks like is you have increased blocking patterns, which are these... The ridges where you don't expect to see precipitation early in the season, so you have thinner snowpack, more conducive to faceting and depth hoar development, um, and you also see a decrease of the of the zonal patterns that do generally result in more precipitation in those areas. So, and and then that so that kind of sets you up with a weak layer at the base for the rest of the season. Um, at Mammoth, it was a little bit different because we actually found a lot of the years where they had more deep slab problems, they also had pretty consistent snowfall for the first half of the season, and that was sort of a head-scratcher for a while. Um, I ended up talking to Ned Bear on the phone, for who's done a lot of work out in Mammoth. Um, he was the one that helped get me in touch with these with their records, too. And after talking to him, I kind of realized that that their snowpack during the years when it doesn't snow, sometimes there's just no snow on the ground. Mm -hmm. So there's not enough even to have a deep slab avalanche. He's also saying that a lot of their deep slab events occur in that first half of the season. So just by, you know, purely based on our criteria of having a deep slab needs to be a meter deep or more. um, If it didn't snow enough, then none of those would have been considered deep slab events. So, so they they kind of have this climate where you need a certain, you know, enough snow for it to happen, but then during big years where it snows a ton, either there's no weak layer developed or if even if there is, it just gets buried so deep that nothing ever happens with it. So they're kind of like this Goldilocks type situation where they're, we're still seeing really high counts for uh, patterns that generally end up in precipitation, which is... A lot different than what's going on at bridger and jackson
1: mm-hmm.
0: pretty interesting
1: and different weather uh, upper atmosphere weather patterns influencing that
0: Mhm. yeah so the, each each of the sites had their own sort of special patterns that were preferential to snowfall so at bridger it was that you know that that slight ridge over the coast and uh you know a, a trough over Montana and more of that northwest flow um at Jackson the the biggest storms seem to happen with more of a direct west or even like a slightly southwest pattern and that's those storms that track along the Snake River plain so that moisture is able to get really efficiently be transported from the coast right to the Tetons as their first big barrier um, they also had some snowfall with more of a Northwest zonal pattern. But in general, those were, that's drier, uh, less snowfall and less moisture and weight. So Mm -hmm. those ones weren't as big, but they did show up. And then at Mammoth, uh, they also saw the most snow and the Mm -hmm. most frequent storms with that sort of zonal Southwestern pattern. And they're right on the coast, so they're not gonna have major barriers no matter what, but just based on the smaller scale topography, if the storms come slightly out of the southwest, there are fewer mountains to intercept that moisture before it gets there. So sure. those those were their biggest patterns.
1: All right, and so you started talking a little bit about the criteria that you used for a deep slab avalanche, mm-hmm. right? So um, you said more than a meter deep. What other criteria did you use?
0: Yep. So we were we wanted to make sure I wanted to make sure that we weren't looking at either like just really big storm events, Mm -hmm. or big wind slabs. um, Because those, I mean, even though they're equally destructive, they're a lot easier to predict, right? If it snows a bunch, you can probably guess you're gonna have big avalanches. Um, So we had a couple different ways of trying to narrow down or, you know, hone in on avalanches that were failing on persistent weak layers. So uh, one of the easy indicators we had based on the records was if the bed surface was ground, was marked ground, then we would include that as a deep slab avalanche. Um, we also had, we, we picked it apart and, and figured out, out of all of the avalanches on record, um, we sort of made a plot of the crown depth versus the 72 hour storm totals to see you know what what would reasonably be assumed to be a, either a wind slab or a storm slab um, just based on how often they occurred because you'd expect to see a ton of wind slabs and a ton of storm slabs fewer deep slabs so just we were looking at kind of the tail of that distribution we took the the upper 10% percent so the most extreme events that had, you know, where the that crown depth was greater than it ended up being around four or five times the storm total, depending on the site. Um, and that was just another way to kind of tease out some of these bigger events that happened. Uh, and then the the final step was looking through everything that we pulled out manually making sure that it looked like it was in fact deep slab event and then uh and also looking at a bunch of plots from you know try to spot some of the outliers for the bigger avalanches and see if we missed any from that criteria so there were some another smaller group that we added in manually after running the whole data set through the through that uh, sort of algorithm
1: okay so all these avalanche events were reported avalanches or triggered in ski areas? Are they natural or? Yeah. So that, yeah, that's actually an important piece. They're all,
0: it all comes from, from the ski resort. So it's the records maintained by the ski patrol. Okay. Uh, so they're all inbounds they are all intentionally triggered. Um, and you know, reasonable to assume that it's, it's obviously a different snowpack than what's going on in the backcountry. Sure. Um, but it's also the best, by far, the best record you have for something like this because any, any backcountry avalanche record is going to be totally dependent on whether someone, you know, first of all, if it's human-triggered or really massive or if someone gets hurt or, or killed in it. Um, so the that data set ends up getting s- sort of skewed, whereas the ski patrol, there's, you know, certainly there's some events that go unrecorded but overall there's there's way more that get recorded there's a lot more to work with
1: sure i and we, and we certainly know that deep slab avalanches are hard to predict and forecast for in the backcountry but also in the in the ski area i mean mm-hmm. there's lots of instances where there are skier compacted slopes that are releasing right yeah and, and sometimes that's a, a wet avalanche issue but sometimes it's just a a depth or basal facet issue. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Just a matter of finding the right spot or the right, uh, you know, in this case, the the right weather leading to the event, like having enough load on it really to make it happen. But sure. Yeah, it is definitely a challenging problem inbounds too.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like there's been some other research concerning deep slab that's gone on at MSU. How is your project or your research different than some of that other stuff? Mm-hmm.
0: So the most recent one at MSU was, I mentioned Alex Marienthal's earlier, and he was looking more at uh, the sort of meteorological properties of deep slabs. So I'm not totally sure exactly what his criteria were, but he was looking more at like storm totals, uh, changes in temperature, you know, things that you would measure at a weather station. Mm-hmm um which is awesome and you know, and very applicable to the site. It's easy to take that and, you know, recognize red potential red flags. Um and there's been other studies, similar studies, uh I know there's a few out of Canada within the last twenty years that took a really similar approach. Um this is a little bit different because instead of looking at these point measurements we're looking at regional observations mm-hmm. uh so in terms of forecasting it gives you you know generally the these these upper air charts you can get at least broad like big picture you can get pretty reliable forecasts up to a week out which is maybe not as uh, not the case with like snowfall for instance um and it and it allows you to sort of compare different study sites based on the same atmospheric condition because we're looking at an area that covers, you know, twice the size of North America. So um, it's a similar way of addressing the same question but using a different approach.
1: Nice. Um, so what are kind of the key findings from this research? What did you distill it all down to?
0: Yep. Yeah, so it seemed like the it for the bridger and jackson site the big uh the big take home was seeing these increase uh in blocking patterns during the early winter season um and then also a decrease in their in the zonal flow that usually results in precip and then like i mentioned at mammoth it's they they need to get some snow in order for it to be a deep slab year, but it sort of has to be just the right amount for it to set up, to set the table. Um, and then in that 72-hour window prior to deep slab events, um, at at all three sites, it's really uh, comes down to a matter of loading. So they're all seeing increased counts in the, the zonal patterns that, Really efficiently transport moisture to each of the study sites, and it, you know, depending on the study site, it might look a little different. Um, where Bridger is coming more out of the northwest, uh, Jackson and Mammoth, it's more westerly or southwesterly. But it it all comes back to increased loading in that um, in that seventy two hour window. <laughs> I, I had a conversation with uh, with a a bunch of the patrollers up at bridgeable when i showed them this stuff they're like you know i got done showing everything and i think it was uh i it It was either doug Richmond or pete moletsky someone was like like great we already knew all that (laughs) and and you know on one hand that's that's very true and i think first of all i would be alarmed if i found something that was like really butting against the grain of what like Years and decades of experience was telling us, so it's useful for two different reasons. So, first of all, when for the people that already see these patterns, I think there's some value in uh, seeing it quantified and you know studied fairly exhaustively. I think it's uh, it's it sort of um, just supports these in, like intuitive notions that a lot of us already have. Um, so I, I think, you know, I at least found that helpful in the bridgeable area where I was just, and not from working here, just from skiing here, I kind of was tuned into some of these patterns. But, you know, it's it was uh, really helpful to, to, like, see it quantified and really ironed out that mm-hmm. they, they do exist and that it shows up in the data. Um, and then I think another really good application of this is for someone, you know, I think it's not that uncommon in our field for people to move around and work at different areas. Maybe if you're, you know, moving to work in a new ski patrol in a different mountain range or, uh, forecasting in a new zone, um, this analysis is actually pretty easy to run now that it's already been done and put together. Um, so, you know, doing something similar for a new place to just understand these patterns or at least at, at a basic level after you know maybe a week of doing some work on it uh, can give you a big leg up and I, I'm not saying it'll it can't it can't replace decades of experience but it can definitely help speed that train along a little bit for for a practitioner who's new to an area
1: sure that certainly makes sense um, could it be used for other snow and avalanche problems and you know other other than locations but separate, avalanche problems other than deep slab
0: yeah i think i mean you could use it for any you could apply the exact same framework and change your criteria to filter out uh you know storm slabs wind slabs whatever you want um i think also the you know just in general in the snow world there hasn't been a whole lot done with uh self-organizing maps or neural networks in general so and I think there's a ton of potential for that. So there's uh, some researchers in Canada have been have used it uh, to classify different avalanche uh, avalanche problems, different types of avalanches. Um, and I think there's you know a ton of potential. Some of the earliest applications of self-organizing maps were in uh, marketing and demographics, and I think you can really draw some parallels between like market research and looking at different just different qualities for different people like they're they're concerned with you know age gender income things like that but i think we can take that to looking at accidents and fatalities and and look at you know education level uh definitely age experience different indicators and sort of see what the what the highest risk groups are and i think that could sort of help shape maybe uh, changes in education or just different ways that we can sort of try to reduce avalanche accidents in general. And I'm sure there's other ways out there too, but any, any uh, you know, any large data set, which we have now with avalanche records, uh, I think these kind, this kind of approach with using neural networks can be really, really helpful.
1: And and this was kind of the you did some of the first research concerning snow and avalanche um, data using these self organizing maps.
0: Yeah, definitely not the first one, but yeah, there's yeah it's a very small handful of studies that are out there so far, and and hopefully I think, uh, I mean part of it is that they just haven't been around that long. Sure. These tools, and um, but I think we'll probably hopefully see more and more of this coming up.
1: Right certainly seems like a pretty amazing way to organize a lot of information and a lot
0: of data. Mm-hmm. And I know in the climate world, there's a lot more of this going on and they're really focused uh, or there is a large focus on the methodology of doing this kind of classification. And that's, as far as I can tell, that's where they're at right now is using these self-organizing maps. Right. I think I think there's a lot of room for us to use it here in the snow world.
1: Yeah. So as I talked to other researchers here in the Bozeman and MSU area this week, it seems like most research ends up with some findings, but then other questions. So like, what are the other couple questions that you have floating around in your head that are kind of really prodding you to investigate more? Yeah. Well, I think... You know, if I had, like, all the time and all the funding in the
0: world, I think the one of the – I would really like to look more at, demogra- at accent demographics mm-hmm. with this stuff, and it's an area that is, you know, pretty – I haven't done any work in it, but I just think, I, you know, I can see, like, a really quick transition there that would be – that could be really useful. Um, and so that's one thing uh, I think – Doing a little bit more work, looking at uh, avalanche problem types like they did in Canada, but doing that in the U.S. would be really cool too. Um, and I'd I'd like to look at at more uh, try to incorporate more weather data to maybe to push so, sort of build on the research that I have and, and push it towards more of a instead of just teasing out general trends to push it towards more towards something that could be used as a forecasting tool. Mm. Um, But that's, that might be a bit of a pipe dream, but I just think that the possibility could be there, but need would need a lot of work. Sure.
1: Andrew, any stories of close calls or lessons learned from the snow and avalanche environment? Sounds like you've skied around quite a bit. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I guess... The I had
0: one close call when I was skiing down in Colorado outside of Crested Butte. Uh, it must have been 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, and so I was pretty new to the world of backcountry skiing, having just moved from Illinois. Uh, but I, yeah, it was just a, I was out skiing, uh, dug a pit and everything looked great. And then I hiked up about a thousand feet further and change aspects and, uh, kicked off a, a pretty big, uh, persistent slab that luckily I, I was right on top of the crown when it broke. So I didn't get dragged with it, but it was, you know, it was big enough that it could have been a very serious, uh, accident. And so that was one lesson I learned early on with no consequence of, you know, constantly reevaluating and paying attention to how quickly snow can change, even with, you know relatively short changes in time and elevation um that was one close call, and then also, and that was a while back, and then just this year, uh in it, it must have been right around the time I finished my master's program. I was out skiing, we had a great day uh we kind of noticed it i for some reason we changed our travel plan. I think it might have been uh, either wind or sun or something like that. I think it was more based on ski quality than danger. But so we opted for a different route, still felt like we were playing it pretty safe, uh, skied, had a great time. And then like two days later, I saw an email come in to the Avalanche Center. It had a picture of a huge Uh, a deep slab that had pulled out basically had ripped out our skin track from that day and I think it was a matter of it was you know it was in May so it was warming up and I think it got some water down to the ground but when something like that happens you know I wonder if we if we were just lucky while we were out there or if you know the weather was good and everything was safe while we were there and then it changed but I guess I'm not really sure what the take-home was from that one yet, but it just sort of made me open my eyes for sure.
1: Yeah, it's quite a way to cap off some research of deep slab avalanche. Yeah, no right? kidding, yeah. <laughs> wow. wow. Well, Andrew, thanks for taking the time to sit down with us today and, and share some of the, the methodology and the findings of your master's research. We appreciate you sifting through all that data and, yeah. and uh, bringing us some better understanding of some of the upper level atmosphere patterns that may lead to deep slab avalanches.
0: Yeah. Thanks for getting me on the podcast. I'm psyched to have a chance to talk about a little bit. I listen to this
1: thing all the time. Right on. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Andrew. I know I did. Um, Andrew, last year after this, after we recorded this episode, Andrew started working as a forecaster for the West Central Montana Avalanche Center, some folks that I certainly need to touch base with and and maybe get on the podcast here soon. Um, so it sounded like he had a great winter out there forecasting. If you'd like to read more about Andrew's research, um, you can read an article in the Avalanche Review, uh, Volume 38.2, second second issue from the 2019 2020 winter Um, so check that out there all I will also post a link in the show notes to his paper if you want to read even more get a little extra credit extra studious for you for you out there Um, as always big thanks to all of you the listeners of this show we've got one more episode for the 2020 season coming out on august 1st and i'm already starting to look forward to next season and i'm gonna be sending out some some emails to potential guests and hopefully they'll be willing to participate but if you know of somebody that wants to be on the show or if you want to be on the show if you have a story to tell about a close call or an accident that we can all learn from please don't hesitate to reach out you can email me at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find a contact form through my website, triple Don't forget to follow us on the socials. We are at the AvalancheHour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Our artwork, of course, was made possible, created by Mike T, you demand T. If you're looking for any custom artwork logo work you better look up mike t he is the man as i always say our music today was uh let's see morning cup by ketsa the beginning of the hour and taking us out of the hour is blessed by sholin dub you can find those tracks at ketsa.uk and the use of the tracks were made possible through paying for them and the permission of the artist if you are enjoying the show, please rate and review it on whatever platform you're listening to it on. That really does help kind of drive the, the exposure that the podcast gets on those platforms. So it certainly does help out. If you have feedback that you want to give me, if, if you think I'm just totally blowing it and need to be doing stuff differently, I want to hear that too. You can blast me on those reviews if you want, or you can just email me again, give me that feedback. Try to do something nice for somebody else today. And until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.